He's awesome. Fred was my, uh, he's one of many uh, surf instructors I have. And I have many surf instructors because I just can't quite figure out how to surf. Uh, so if you've ever surfed before, you know it's a pretty steep um, learning curve. And I have to just kind of go back to Love Fullerton. Uh, we were at Love Fullerton this week. It was an incredible, incredible thing to be a part of. If you've ever served alongside of people, uh, serving alongside of people is just it's much more fun and at times feels more rewarding than serving on your own. Now, when you're serving by yourself, it's good and it's rewarding and it's the right thing to do, but there's just something about the camaraderie of people when you're serving together that just makes it more enjoyable. In fact, if you've ever moved before and you've tried to move on your own, you know that it's quite the task. But if you can call together some of your guys and your girls and you can move as a unit, it just makes the whole process quicker and more enjoyable. There's just something about serving together that makes it more enjoyable. In fact, as I was thinking about that this week, I realized that most things in life are more enjoyable with other people. I was going through all the things that I enjoy doing from the movies to going out to eat, to going to the park, to any kind of extracurricular activity. And I went through one by one. I just thought, man, every single one of these things is more enjoyable when you do it with people, when you have the presence of people in your life. And then as I began to unpack this, I I began to kind of think through, well, not only is serving better with people, not only are extracurricular activities better with people, but the difficult times and the times when we're going through trials, the times when we are in trouble, those seasons are better with people as well. If you've ever been sick, it's always nice to have somebody that can go to the drugstore for you. It's always nice to have somebody else that can kick you, kick you, that can cook you chicken, cook you chicken noodle soup, right? So if you've ever gone to college and it was your freshman year and it was early on and you're living in the dorms and you haven't quite made friends yet and you get sick, you realize how valuable it is to have somebody for you when you're there. When you're going through troubling, difficult times, It's better when you're with people. But if you're with me and if you're like me, you've been through a season or a trial or you've been through trouble and when you looked up, you felt as if there was nobody around you. You felt as if the people that you most desperately wanted to be around you to encourage you were gone. For some of you, it was that first time you got sick in the dorms your freshman year. For some of you, it's that first time you lost your job and you were looking for a new job. For some of you, it's the first time that relationship didn't work out with your significant other. Uh, For some of you, it was the falling apart and the distancing from your kids or from your spouse in a marriage. If you've ever been in a situation in which it felt like your world was collapsing and you looked up and it felt as if nobody was around you, it's one of the most despairing times of your life. It's an immensely difficult time. It's sometimes in moments like that we begin to ask the question, where are the people that I need when I need them the most? And and then when when we take it out of just the people around us, if you're like me uh, and you've been in a troubling situation, you've gone through a difficult season, or you've been in a trial, sometimes this question pops up in your mind, where is God in all of this? Where is God when I need him the most? 
When I'm in the most trouble and in the most despair, does God even care? Does God even see me? If you're like me, you've asked this question before. And if you're here tonight asking that question, I would say that you are in the right place. Uh, This question, where is God in the midst of my confusion? Where is God when life seems very complex? Uh, Where is God when I'm in a difficult season? If you're asking that question, you are asking that question with thousands of people and thousands of years of church history that have gone before you. And so tonight we want to begin to look into one of those moments. It comes from Luke chapter 24. It's this immensely interesting scene. Uh, At the beginning of the passage, it's a little bit cryptic as to who the, the author is speaking about, but it's speaking about two disciples that are walking along the road. And as they're walking, they're walking from Jerusalem to a village called Emmaus. And the text says that the distance between Jerusalem and Emmaus is about seven miles. Now, if you're a power walker, and my mom is a power walker, uh, you can do seven miles in about an hour and a half. Like, you're like really moving. If you're like me and you just enjoy a stroll, you can put down seven miles in about two and a half hours. But if you've ever been in a deep conversation with a friend and you're kind of getting lost along the way and it's less about the walk and it's more about the conversation, you know that it can take you three and a half to four hours to put down those seven miles. And when we read the text, we find that's, that's precisely the kind of dialogue these two folks are in. Uh, these disciples, they're walking along the road and the text says they're talking about everything that has just happened. And not only are they talking about everything that has just happened, the text says that these two disciples are downcast. They're filled with sorrow. They're filled with grief. And if you've ever been on a long walk with a spouse or a friend or a brother or a sister or a son or a daughter, and you're talking about things that are weighing on your heart, you know these walks can feel like they take ages. And so these disciples, they just begin this journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and they begin to talk about all the things that have happened over the past five or six days. And for these disciples, their worlds have been absolutely turned upside down. If you were to listen into the conversation, you you may have heard something like this between the two disciples. I, I just can't believe what just happened. Do you remember when we were traveling with Jesus from Jericho to Jerusalem? We were just a few miles outside of Jerusalem, and it felt like Jesus was going to be king. The Messiah that we'd been waiting on, I mean, the the colt and the donkey came in. Jesus began to ride on the colt and the donkey, and I remember being with the crowd. Do you remember? We were taking our cloaks and, and laying them down before the donkey and laying down palm branches. I can still hear the sound of the crowd chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And they, they, they continue to talk about this. And, and they remember Jesus coming into the temple and teaching as one who has authority. They're remembering the excitement they were feeling, the moment, the climactic moment of Yahweh returning to Jerusalem, returning to Zion. These two disciples probably felt like this was happening in the person of Jesus. And then they begin to recount as they're slowly walking along the path, 
kicking pebbles. And, and then this, this whole Jesus thing just fell apart. I mean, I remember Jesus one day teaching in the temple, and the next day he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And instead of getting ready to become king, the Roman army comes and takes him into chains. And if you've ever been in a dialogue about grief and sorrow, you know there's long pauses along the way. And they say, and I remember when they took Jesus in front of all of Israel. And they offered to let Jesus go. And instead, the people asked for Barabbas. We had a chance to get Jesus back. And instead, the crowd chanted, give us Barabbas instead. And they're walking along, recounting all of these moments. And they are deeply, deeply troubled and deeply confused. They're talking about all the things that have happened. They probably begin to talk about the crucifixion of Jesus and how they thought, surely the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus doesn't end like this. Surely our great prophet doesn't die on a cross with criminals. And they're walking slowly along the road, recounting all of these things that have happened. The text says they're filled with sorrow and they're downcast. And then a third character enters the story. Uh, the text says that um, there's someone walking along the road that walks up beside these two disciples. If you're a reader, the author lets you know ahead of time that, in fact, the resurrected Jesus walks up next to the disciples, but the disciples are they're kept from seeing Jesus. There's something about Jesus in this moment. They, they, they just can't quite see him clearly. And if you've ever been in a deep conversation with somebody and a third party interrupted your conversation as if they weren't quite sure what the mood or temperament was, you're not the happiest camper at that moment. You kind of just want to say, hey, buddy, get away. Beat it. We're having a conversation here. That, that might be the scene that's happening. Uh, this stranger to the disciples who we know is Jesus walks up next to the two of them and says, hey, what are you guys talking about? The disciples, filled with sorrow and distraught, respond, what are we talking about? You're, you're walking in the same direction as us. You're coming from Jerusalem. Are you the only person that has been in Jerusalem and doesn't know what's been happening? They speak in such a way that as if you were in Jerusalem at this time, you knew exactly what was going on. And Jesus responds, what things? What happened? And the disciples slowly begin to recount for Jesus what they've been speaking about. They say the things of Jesus, the Nazarene. And then they say this, this potent word about Jesus being a prophet. The text says this. It says that Jesus was a prophet. He was powerful in word and deed, not just before God, but before all of the people. When the disciples speak about Jesus like that, they're putting Jesus in a category with Moses and Elijah and the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. You see, prophets didn't just speak God's word. They oftentimes performed signs to accompany God's word. And they weren't uh, ambiguous words and just clever uh, works of power to do. They were always leading God's people closer to God's heart. They were always leading God's people closer and closer back to God. 
they say, but this, this prophet, this teacher, this miracle worker walking among us, he was handed over to the religious leaders. And they killed him. They crucified him. What is worse? And then they bring up one of the most foundational images for a believer. They say, but we had hoped. We had hoped that Jesus was the one that was going to redeem Israel. When you talk about redemption in the first century, the primary image they would have had is the image of the Exodus of Moses going to Pharaoh and telling Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go. If you know the story, Moses goes back several times and several plagues come on the Egyptian people. And eventually, what the text says is that Israel is redeemed. To be redeemed means to be purchased, to be ransomed, to be set free. But for Israel thousands and thousands of years ago, it wasn't just a spiritual liberation. It was a liberation in every respect. It was a spiritual liberation because they were finally going to come out from underneath the pantheon of gods in Egypt and they were going to be able to worship Yahweh alone in the desert. It was an economic liberation because they were going to come out from slavery into a land that was going to be plentiful and abundant. It was going to be a social liberation because they were going to set up a society that was based on the laws of Torah in which they would begin to treat one another and their families differently. When you talked about redemption in the first century, it wasn't just spiritual, although it was spiritual. It was much more than that. And so if you were a first century Israelite, you believed that the redemption wasn't just spiritual, but it meant that finally Rome would leave its occupation of Israel. Finally, the land would become plentiful and abundant again. Finally, all of Israel would be restored. And what these disciples say is they say, man, we'd hoped that this was the time of our final redemption. We'd hoped that it was Jesus, but obviously we were foolish. Obviously, we are on the wrong side of history because it wasn't him. And they mention this startling moment, and they say, but we're actually, we're not just foolish, we're perplexed. Because the women that have been journeying with us, they went to the tomb to find Jesus, and they couldn't find him there. And some of the men that were disciples, they went after the women, and they found the same scene, but we haven't found the body, and it's three days later, and we're just confused. We're downcast. We're in despair. Our our greatest hopes have come crashing down around us. It feels as if the world is collapsing. Have you ever been in a scenario like that? It felt like your world was collapsing in around you because of a breakup with your significant other. It felt like your world was collapsing around you because your job situation after college isn't quite working its way out the way you'd hoped that it would. Your world is collapsing around you because marriage is more difficult than you thought it would be. Have you ever been in a situation like that in despair, glum, feeling as if you were on the wrong side of whatever decision that you made? If you've ever been in a situation like that, you are not alone. And then Jesus, who is still a stranger at this point, he says, you two are a bunch of doofuses. He says, don't you know? He calls them actually foolish. Are you hard-headed? 
Have you not fully read the scriptures? For this stranger speaking to them, he says that when the Messiah came, it wasn't going to be all glory and all power, but the Messiah was going to have to first suffer these things and then enter into his glory. And the disciples are probably even more perplexed when this stranger says this. And then he says, the text says this in Luke chapter 24, verse 27. It says, in beginning with Moses, Jesus, this man, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to these two disciples what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. For this stranger, he had the mentality that all of the Old Testament prophets and scriptures were about the Messiah. When Jesus is speaking, he's speaking in such a way that all the Old Testament scriptures and prophets were speaking about him. That he would have to suffer and die and then enter into his glory. He was probably pulling from all kinds of passages. He was probably pulling from Genesis when the text says that a serpent will strike the heel of the one that will come, but this person will crush the head of the serpent. He was probably speaking from a passage in Deuteronomy, from from Numbers, that that, that talks about Moses having a snake uh, wrapped around a stake, and all the people of Israel are sick, and Moses raises up the staff with the snake on it, and it says, whoever sees the snake will be healed. And later Jesus says, the Son of Man in the same way must be lifted up. And for everyone who believes in him, they will have eternal life. They're probably pulling from passages like Isaiah chapter 53, that talks about the suffering servant. That surely the servant that would come in the name of the Lord would bear our pain, would carry our suffering. Surely he would carry the iniquities of us all. So for the next three and a half to four hours, this stranger alongside the disciples opens the scriptures to them. And as the text says, as they, as they approach the village, uh, Jesus keeps walking. He, he just, he's got a mission. He's going somewhere else. But these two disciples, they say, no, please stay with us. And the stranger may have said, no, I've, I've, I'm actually headed somewhere else. I wasn't headed to Emmaus. I should keep going. And the text says that the disciples urge this stranger to stay in. It's almost evening. You can't make it to your next destination before the sun goes down, so just stay with us. You can imagine in the midst of their despair and their confusion and the perplexity surrounding the situation, they know they're confronted with a man that knows the scriptures in a deep and profound way. A rabbi of sorts. A teacher of sorts. And so this stranger, Jesus, relents. And he sits with the people. And if you ever had a rabbi or a teacher in your house in the first century, you oftentimes gave the privilege of, of this person breaking bread to them, of giving thanks over the meal. And so this kind of situation probably went down. This stranger Jesus comes into the house. The disciples still don't know who he is. And, and they ask him, will you give thanks? Will you break bread for us? And then this bizarre scene happens in which this stranger Jesus takes the bread, he breaks it, he gives thanks, and he blesses it, and he passes it to the disciples. And when he does, 
the text says that the eyes of the disciples are opened. And they see Jesus. Scholars are, uh, they're, they're kind of all over the map as far as why they began to see Jesus at this moment. Some, some speak about it as if Jesus is breaking bread in the same way that he did at the Last Supper. Some scholars mention that oftentimes when you would give thanks, you would spread your arms, and it's the first time these disciples see the scars in his wrist. There's all kinds of reasons, but something happens when Jesus breaks bread that the disciples, they see Jesus. They're shocked. They're appalled. In the midst of their most troubling road, in the midst of walking down this path in which they were going through their greatest trial, in the midst of this journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus, when they are the most confused and the most perplexed, they had no idea that Jesus was with them the entire time. And they say these, these fascinating words. They look at each other, they say, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked? When this stranger who we now know is Jesus, when he was speaking and opening up the scriptures to us on the road, didn't our hearts burn within us? When the text uses this word for burn, it's the word for to come alive, to be refreshed. And I think this is one of the things for us here. If we're going to pull something from this passage, it's the idea that in the midst of our, of our darkest days, in a time when we are in the most trouble, in a time when we are deeply confused and deeply perplexed about the way the world is, oftentimes it is so difficult to see that God could possibly be a part of it. And we begin to ask that question, God, where are you? Where are you when I need you the most? Where are you when I need to know that you care the most? Where are you when I need to know that you see me the most? You see, one of the things that we find in the scriptures is that in our darkest days, in our deepest valleys, the testimony of scripture is that Jesus is always with us always walking beside us. Whether it's a financial difficulty, whether it's a marriage that feels like it's falling apart, whether it's singleness that feels like it's too difficult to bear, maybe it's a situation at school or at work, whatever the situation that has you confused and perplexed, the testimony of Scripture is that Jesus is walking alongside of us every step of the way. And then we ask the question, well, how can we know? Where's our confidence? How can I be sure? And I'm so encouraged by the words of the disciples because they say, didn't our hearts come alive? Didn't our hearts burn within us when he opened the scriptures to us? You see, all throughout church history, uh, the church has deeply valued the scriptures. In fact, writers say that every word of the text is God-breathed, that it's powerful, it's like a two-edged sword able to divide soul from spirit and bone from marrow. You see, when we go to the text, we find something that isn't just history. 
And it's not just stories, and it's not just words, but it's power. It's actually a glimpse into the heart of God and his faithfulness towards his people. Hebrews will say something like this. Uh, Hebrews will say, in the past, God has spoken in a variety of ways. He's spoken orally. He's spoken in the written word. He has spoken through the prophets. But in these final days, God has spoken the most clearly. And he's spoken through his son. It's why the church for thousands of years has not only valued the scriptures, but we value the gospel accounts. We value the red letters because when we open the scriptures and we begin to read about the life and the words of Jesus, all of a sudden we begin to tune in to what God is really like. We begin to tune into a clear picture of who God is. It's why all throughout church history they've they've prayed the scriptures. They've meditated through the scriptures. When they've fasted, they've recited the scriptures. When they've studied, they've studied the scriptures because there is something about these words, these God-breathed, spirit-inspired, historical words that when we come close to them, our hearts begin to burn. They begin to come alive. But, but if you're like me and you're in a perplexing, confusing situation, sometimes this is the last place I want to come to. Sometimes this is the last place I want to go. I'm oftentimes tempted to put this on hold, to go get my life in order, get it straightened away, get it rearranged, and then I can come back to the scriptures. But, but it's the reason why the church gathers. The church gathers every Sunday to open the scriptures and to study from them because we know that in them are the words of life. It's the reason in our community groups, if you're part of a 5 p.m. community group at least, we're, we're reading through a book called The Celebration of Discipline in which we're learning to pray through the scriptures, to meditate through the scriptures, to study the scriptures, to be in solitude with the scriptures. It's the reason we actually begin to organize our life around the scriptures. When we open them, our hearts have the chance power of the Holy Spirit and the inspiration of God and the historicity of Jesus to burn within us, to be refreshed and to come alive. Church, I I think the encouragement to us tonight may be to never forsake the gathering together around Jesus and his word, to consistently come to a church like this on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening to hear from God's word. To be committed to consistently gathering in homes to read God's word, to be refreshed. To setting aside time in the morning before work or school to read through a psalm or a proverb or the words of Jesus to to find some kind of audio book that you can put on in your drive. See, there's something about the scriptures that church history has found to be deeply impactful. That in the midst of our confusion, in the midst of being deeply perplexed, in the midst of our gloom, we can come here to not just be refreshed, but to encounter characters that have been in the same place as we have been. From Noah, to Abraham, to Joseph, 
to David, to the prophets, to Jesus, to Paul, to the apostles, we find the story of God's faithfulness throughout thousands of years. To the church, we should always find this deeply encouraging and inspiring a place we can run to for our hearts to burn again. Let's pray together. Father, we pause for a moment as we read your scriptures to say thank you. Thank you for your scriptures that you've, you've given us guidance, you've given us counsel, you've given us your very word that our hearts may burn within us that we may come alive again and be refreshed by the word that's spoken from your very mouth. Penned by your people for thousands and thousands of years. God, we ask you this week that as we encounter the scriptures in our community groups, and as we encounter the scriptures in our cars and in our living rooms and, and with our friends, we ask you, Holy Spirit, that as we open your words, our hearts would burn within us they'd be refreshed and they would come to life in the midst of a despairing and difficult trial and trouble-filled season. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're hoping this week that your heart would burn when you open the scriptures, that something about you would come back to life when you open his word, I I just want to pray with you. So with every head bowed, every eye closed, if you want to raise your hand, I just want to pray for you. I see you in the front. I see you in the very back. I see you here on the right. I see you on the left. You can put your hands down. Father, I pray for every person that just raised their hand. That Holy Spirit, this week, we want to ask you to do something that only you can do, which is to transform us from the inside out by the opening of your word. So Holy Spirit, would you do something divine in us this week? that when we open up the testimony of Scripture through Moses and the prophets and Jesus and the early church, Holy Spirit, would you speak to us afresh? Would you speak to us in a way that only you can speak to us? That's the cry of our heart, to know you more deeply, Jesus, to align ourselves more fully with you, to be able to give you more of us than we've ever given you in the past. Come and do it only you can do. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Let's worship together this evening.